This is the Sport Lifestyle Network podcast, where relationships matter. Conversations between thought leaders from sports, fitness, and tech. The SLN podcast starts now. This is Chad Capelman. I had the chance to reconnect with Michael Parks Randa, a former colleague who's coming off the release of his first feature film after more than a decade as an established music video director. Best Summer Ever, an original inclusive high school musical, features a fully integrated cast and crew of people with and without disabilities, and has been backed by the likes of Ted Danson, Mary Steenburgen, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and others. The critically acclaimed film was a labor of love for Randa, whose parents have been actively involved in supporting people with disabilities for more than 50 years. We talked about the challenges of shooting realistic sports scenes, the star turned by two young sports announcers in the film, the teamwork involved with co-directing, and Randa's ties to people behind the Oscar-nominated documentary Crip Camp. We also talked about life at Doomsday Entertainment, a Los Angeles-based agency that includes industry standouts like Childish Gambino, Barry, and Atlanta director Hiro Murai, and how Michael's activist father's adventures are now providing inspiration for his next writing and directing endeavor. Michael Parks Randa, welcome to the Sport Lifestyle Network podcast. Thank you for having me on. Super psyched to reconnect with you. It's been way too long. Yeah, time seems to have weird ways of traveling these days, doesn't it? No, it really does. I feel like that one of the benefits of the pandemic has been able to just connect in ways we hadn't before. And I feel like a lot of the, given the sort of the Zoom transition, I feel like I've been reconnecting with a lot of people and doing lots of interviews that normally would be done in person or maybe wouldn't happen because we're in separate cities. I think this has definitely been the silver lining is being able to connect uh, a little bit more broadly. Absolutely. And just from a time travel standpoint, the last time I think I saw you in person, we were both working in agencies in the Boston area. And now here we are talking about a film that you wore, I think, 11 hats for. <laughs> Could be even more. But yeah, 11. How would you describe those hats? Yeah. So the film is called Best Summer Ever, and it is an inclusive musical featuring a cast and crew of individuals with and without disabilities. We made this film in Bristol, Vermont in 2017 and just came out. So as you can tell that it's been a labor of love for quite a while. And really, it's, it's, it was created through a group of friends that really celebrate inclusion with and without disabilities, just friendships. And we've been making films on a real guerrilla level for about 10 years. Nothing more than like kind of shorts that were ambitious at the time. And we grew into our own and decided to bite off more than we could chew and make a feature musical. And so I'm a co-director and a co-writer, one of the head editors, executive producer, the list goes on. And that's really not entirely out of the ordinary when you're you know creating indie films. It's whatever you have to wear in order to get the product, the film to the finish line, and you just have to be down for it. Just roll up your sleeves and adapt. Absolutely. And it's definitely uh, been very well received. I understand that it won the Social Impact Award at the 2020 Heartland International Film Festival. And, and just a lot of people have been eager to see it. I know it had been talked about for a while. How, how have you been think, feeling about the reception? We've been feeling really good about it, especially given the film was supposed to premiere at South by Southwest 2020, which was our dream come true to be able to have that that type of platform to release the film. And especially for those of our actors um, and crew members with disabilities to really have that visibility at a festival of that nature that's so well regarded and is also just like such a blast to go to. We all were really heartbroken because it was the very first thing that got canceled because of COVID in America. 
South by Southwest was like the first. And so we found ourselves scrambling in a really undefined world of how to release a film. And there's just, it's one of those things that we're already underdogs in the industry. And so we're looking to other people who might have navigated things like this. And then you realize this is just completely unfounded territory and everyone's just trying to sort out how to stay healthy. Most importantly, things get put into perspective pretty quickly when the entire world goes on pause, your movie starts to you know, feel less important. But we did just that. We put things on halt for a year. Our whole festival tour was canceled or went online, which we were grateful to be a part of those. But for a movie like this, it's so much about audience engagement, being able to talk to people about the importance of the industry moving into more inclusive territory. So when the film finally did come out, and it got a New York Times critics pick and great write-ups and variety and deadline and just it just blew our minds we were really i think above all really encouraged by the reception as far as industry leaders being like this is exactly the type of film that can be the blueprint for hollywood and for filmmakers everywhere to say this is how you can make an inclusive film this is how disability representation can be done in a way that isn't pampering and it isn't any sort of charity. You can just have characters played by disabled actors and their disability doesn't have to be part of their character arc. And that was really important for us was to make a movie where disability was never mentioned, but it's all throughout the casting. And people seem to take something away from that, which, you know, as a filmmaker is really everything you could ask for. Absolutely. And you also had people that are listed as executive producers. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal was also in the movie, uh, Ted Danson, Jamie Lee Curtis. What was it like to have that level of star power, have interest in supporting the film? I think it spoke volumes to the character of those individuals. They're super busy. They've got a million projects and our tiny little musical certainly could fall to the wayside as far as their priorities. But they really showed up in, in a really proactive way. It just never hurts to have that type of A-list stardom attached to your movie that just helps it get it out there. It was a low-budget-ish indie endeavor. So having some big names on it to really give it a little bit more clout never hurts. I think that having their involvement helped us even get the Today Show, for instance, Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen went on to rep the film. And without that, we wouldn't have gotten it. We had an amazing PR team who really came through. But when push came to shove, the powers that be want a star. They want somebody who is going to help the ratings. And obviously, if it's between me going on, who's a relatively unknown filmmaker, or Ted Danson and Mary, like it's a no-brainer. So having that type of visibility through actors of that caliber really elevated it for us, for sure. And in terms of the bringing the cast together, and it wasn't just the cast, it was the crew, and there was just, at every turn, there was representation throughout. Talk to me a little bit about how you get that to happen and how you work through making sure that doesn't become overly dominating what you're really trying to accomplish. Yeah, from the most important thing as a viewer is to be entertained. And so... I think that it was really striking a balance between making sure that it felt like a balanced cast and also felt like we weren't hitting people over the head with anything necessarily. I think there's something delightfully subliminal about the messaging within it, where I think you can watch it for what it is, which is an entertaining, highly eccentric high school musical. And 
not have to think too much about the casting. And I think it becomes second nature the more that you get into the film. I think right off the bat, some people had said I was really you know, somewhat thrown off by the fact that there were so many people, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, just like this wide, wide segment of disabled individuals in the film. But as the film went on, it felt natural. It felt, yes, perhaps like a bit of a utopian view of the, how the world could be. But for us who have rich friendships of people with disabilities as an able-bodied individual, that's the world I've always grown up in. My parents have run a day program for adults with disabilities for 50 years. So I really grew up in it. And having, throughout my career, I've always naturally integrated disabled friends the same way I would pull Justin Poirier from Genuine to be like an extra in a music video back in like, you know, 2013. I'd do the same thing with a friend of mine who happens to be a wheelchair user. There's less than an agenda when you're just trying to get a project out the door. For this film in particular, of course, there was the agenda being like, let's make something that changed people's perspectives. And I think what's a, a really delicate way to do that is to give them something warm and give an audience something warm and familiar. And I think that the musical genre is a really nice way to situate this type of casting. And it seems to have, you know, paid off in that way. Yeah. And as I was watching it, I, I kept thinking about this idea that it reminds you about how we've decided almost who's entitled to be happy just from experiencing kind of day-to-day -day experiences and adventures. Right, Because at the heart of it, it is a love story between high school students and there's homecoming and there's a football game and there's all these things that are replayed over and over all across the country. But just the fact that who was in it reminds people that you're able to say it without saying it, I think was a really powerful message. Thank you. Yeah, that means a lot. I think that that's something that we definitely wanted to challenge. You see it a lot in commercial advertising. If it's a disabled story, like this woe is me or inspiration porn, as they call it, it's like using disability as a way to inspire. I've got friends in New York who are disabled individuals who just like to go out and get drinks and hang out and date and go to the movies. They live just as normally as we do. And I think that there is this idea in society's collective head that the only real role for people with disabilities in filmmaking is if they're playing some inspirational character or a drunk. The industry's come a long way as far as disability inclusion, but not far enough. And I think that a film like ours, I hope, will get people and casting agents in particular to say, we can think this through differently. We can cast disabled talent just to play characters. Their disability does not have to even be considered part of the role. So that is, that's definitely what we hope the film will help to usher in some change around. And I have to tell you, one of my favorite um, pairings were the two actors that played the uh, sports announcers. <laughs> yes. That's um, an amazing story because that is actually art imitating life. So those individuals, their names are Phil Lucier and Eric Folan, and they are actually students at my parents' school, non-actors. And they have their own Facebook Live that's literally called Phil and Eric Sports Network, something like that. And they, they're huge Boston sports fans. They're really just sports fans in general. And a lot of that kind of crept into the writing of the film. Like, all right, we're going to do this high school musical. And it's got a, a real sports focus. How can we usher the storyline along and add some flavor in that way? And 
those things just come naturally. It's like, well, who do we know? And I was like, I've got these two friends of mine. They'd probably kill it. We just can sit them down and they'll just be able to riff because this is what they do every day. And that's the magic of filmmaking in a project like this, where it's not about finding the furthest reaching talent necessarily. It's about unearthing normal people who may or may not be even actors and just bringing them into the fold and saying, you bring value to this project. And by and large, those two have gotten the most response from people, which is really funny to me because I've known them for 20 years, just as friends, as community members of my parents' program. And it was pretty awesome. And for them, they've just been so stoked. I think they should have like their own like half hour thing on like Nessin or something in Boston where they just like riff on daily Red Sox games or Pats. I think they would add a much needed reprieve from your normal sports broadcasting and journalism of just like few friends that just riff and have a good time. Yeah, they've definitely they've been compared to the two old men from the Muppets. Yeah, you know, like are up in the balcony just like chirping off at everybody. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, they had a Statler and Waldorf quality about them. They're yeah. a little removed. They're watching what's happening. That critical humor take. And then yeah, I was yeah. actually having a flashback to high school when I was a sports writer, and our football team was also really bad. So I wrote one story. Instead of writing about the whole game, I just wrote about three consecutive personal fouls committed by one player uh-huh. as a metaphor for the entire game. So I think that might have been part of why it, it, it hit me so well. Totally. I've only known them as Marley and Marley at, from the, the uh, Muppet Christmas Carol. They played the two Ebenezer Scrooge characters that are in chains and come back and haunt him. I forgot what their names actually were on the Muppets. That's right. But yeah, that's that's spot on. And then in terms of filming anything with sports in it, it's always its own unique challenge. Can you talk to me about that aspect of it from a director standpoint? Totally. Yeah, that was actually one of the biggest challenges because we, of course, didn't have the budget to bring in thousand extras and have weeks and weeks of coordinating plays and even having two full football teams in order to run games. And so we actually ended up We filmed it in Bristol, Vermont, and we filmed it right around September, which we'd planned around so that we could actually film the local football games at the high school. We filmed at that local high school throughout the summer when the students weren't there and then returned in the fall. And so a lot of it was left up to like discovery of, okay, we know that the film is going to end with this kick. We'll be able to capture that self-contained in a small enough shoot and be able to have cutaways of crowds of a a football game. You got to really lean into the energy and have those wide shots of the field and the crowd and having the teams play in an organic way. And we just knew we'd never be able to do that unless we actually went and filmed local games. And so, of course, within that, you're like, you have no idea whether you're going to be able to have, is a Hail Mary going to be thrown at some point? Is it going to be a low scoring game? Is it going to be a high scoring game where you'll have lots of touchdowns? And scheduling wise, we only could shoot two of the home games because we were filming the rest of the movie. So a lot of that was holding our breath. And then we shot with several cameras for those games and kind of just pieced it together in post. And we're like, what do we have? Okay, that shot we'll be able to utilize for when the, the QB you know, has a a terrible throw, we can utilize that shot, then go to a close up actually on the field of our actor. So it was really, it was unconventional, but in the end, more or less worked out. I think there are definitely some things that we wish we'd thought of maybe scheduled differently to have more games. There's this montage within the film where you see a lot of different football games going on, but really that was only one, (laughs) you know, so... (laughs) 
between the the camp scenes, the school scenes, the football and the songs, did it feel like three movies? It did. I've been a music video director for the better past 10 years. And so I felt really comfortable in the space of creating these sort of eight breakout worlds that were really like finely tuned, scripted, shot by shot, like I would any music video that's got sort of narrative leanings in that way. I think you're using a different side of the brain when you're half the day shooting a musical number and then the second half of the day of which you've only captured part of the song, but we're like, okay, we're shooting this part in the high school. So we'll shoot this musical verse in the wood shop or whatever it was. And then it's like, okay, we break for lunch. Now we're filming like a dramatic scene between the protagonists and you're, you're having to flip one switch off that's like very vibrant and lively and then go into a bit of a heavier narrative mindset. And that definitely felt like different films at times. But I think we always knew that we had our eye on the prize that like they would naturally be able to coexist. It's also a musical, what I'd learned given this was my first feature and first time directing a musical is that the musical numbers are such a great narrative cheat where you can usher in information that just moves the story along without having to be like, okay, we have to write this other scene that gives the context of these characters. You can learn about one another through song. And I think that definitely felt like a bit of a cheat while recognizing that's just how musicals are. That's the beauty of them. But I think for my first real narrative endeavor, it felt like a little bit safer Whereas, okay, I know that I've got like half of the movie in the bag in my mind creatively because this is my comfort zone, music videos. And then the narrative end was like, okay, well, I I only really need to capture these storylines because the other storylines exist in the musical numbers themselves. So that was definitely something that was interesting to develop a working order for throughout. Yeah, that makes sense. So in terms of the fact that you have this background making music videos and the kind of template, if you will, that you were working towards creating with this approach and in this cast. And there's a whole conversation you could have about why some of this has taken till now to happen. But I was wondering if you've ever seen the movie Wild Style from 1982. I haven't, no. So it was credited as the first breakdancing movie. Okay. And they were kind of winging it a bit, but there was a lot of performance pieces and everything. And it has been looked back upon as a real groundbreaking film. It, it covers a lot of the graffiti culture, the breakdancing culture, and it was never going to win best picture or best cinematography, but it, it really gave people a view into a world that not everybody had really contemplated in that way. And the fact that there was so much music driving through it in both cases was what kind of made me think about that. Totally. I've got to see that. I've got some friends that are really into uh, breakdance culture and a sort of street art aesthetic. And that's always been something that's interested me, but I've actually never seen a film that's actually been focused on that demographic or that culture. So I'll have to check it out. I'd love to talk a little bit too about which music videos that you worked on do you think help prepare you most for this next step in your career? It's a good question. Talking to you is such a you know blast from the past and, and such a wonderful way because I think back to working at Genuine and I was really burning the candles at both ends. At Genuine, I was like junior video editor, shooter, producer, not director. Did we even have a director? It was just like this ragtag team. But I really wasn't doing specifically what I was passionate about. I loved making music videos. And 
that was a lot of what I was, you know, coming home at five o'clock and really conjuring up these ideas and reaching out to labels. And over time, I really was able to cement myself in the music video industry. And I think some of my earlier work, obviously, it was more like DSLR shooting and talk about wearing hats. I would do literally everything, costuming, casting, all of that. And I think the more that I've been able to fall into the role as just as a director for music videos, the more later years ones where we had bigger budgets. There's a music video for me without you, who's this really incredible art house punk band of legends in the post hardcore punk art house scene. And I directed a music video, which was this coming together of the enchantment under the sea dance as like the backdrop for this music video, but mixed in with Orwell's 1984. And that was where we were able to have lots of extras and big set design, really able to live within a space and not be asking friends to stay late or my brother to go pick up crafty for people. I think over the past couple of years, being able to really sink my teeth into narrative music videos that have a storyline and a through line that also really connects with band performance in a way that feels integrated. One of my biggest pet peeves are music videos that's just a meaningless band performance that's tied in with a narrative that has nothing to do with the band performance and they're just spliced together as if they were shot completely differently the locations they probably were. Did you just describe the entire 1980s? <laughs> Pretty much. And a lot of, it, it does make me think even of like a lot of like early 2000s pop punk videos where like boy and girl and they're having issues. And then you cut to this like warehouse performance with these spiked hair and low slung guitars. And there's just no correlation between the two. I, I look back and appreciate in how cheesy it was, but not something I would necessarily want to direct myself. But yeah, I, I feel like those music videos in the past couple of years, and some of those even after making Best Summer Ever, have continued to help to create a palette that I feel very comfortable creating something that's intriguing and compelling and a bit more highbrow. How would you describe your voice? I think my voice is evolving. I think that for me, I definitely feel a calling to create stories and tell stories that are not being told. I feel creating this film was really a coming together of so much of my family's history and that legacy. My father is a anti-war activist, dis disability rights activist, animal rights activist. And so much of what he and my mom have done together is really stand up for individuals and tell the stories of people who people don't necessarily pay attention to. I think that there has been a real attitude towards people with disabilities as just being invisible. And I hope that, and I feel like my voice right now is being honed in that direction to continue to make films that are inclusive, but also tell stories that really speak to individuals that aren't necessarily getting the limelight and including cast actors and crew members that don't necessarily get a fair shake. And I think that as a white, straight male in the industry, um, that is a good place to align myself and to say, yeah, I've grown up with extreme privilege and I hope that I can help to at least be an ally and create with no agenda other than just, this is what I know. This is the way that I see the world. And I hope that through my work, other people can expand their horizons and hopefully take something away from 
what I do and apply it to their narrative work or documentary work and just help to, it sounds cliche, but make the world a better place. I think that when you have a platform, you'd be, you know, silly not to try to make things a little bit better for, for everybody. Absolutely. And so you had a lot of that perspective prior to this film. Can you talk to me about how the opportunity for Best Summer Ever came to you, how you ended up being a part of it? Yeah. What was really unorthodox is that it's actually created through a nonprofit, which is called Zena Mountain Farm. And Zena Mountain Farm is based in Bristol, Vermont, where we shot the film. It's really a community of people with and without disabilities that get together. It's a creative arts camp. No one pays to attend it. No one gets paid to do it. It's just this really organic community of friends, regardless of ability that get together. It's a summer camp. It's a sports camp. There's camps throughout the year. And so they had started making the films I had referenced before about 10 to 12 years ago, and we would shoot them in Los Angeles. And it was as simple as getting all of us together in a room, 20, 30 of us and writing a script. And every film was genre based. So we did like a superheroes movie, all very low budget, like no money type of films. And we would just run and gun it all around Los Angeles. We did a pirate musical. These are like 15, 20 minute films that then the organization would have screenings around the country, not even like festival type of screenings, but just a fundraiser in Boston or New York or LA or DC and show these films really just for us. We were just making them for ourselves. And I think there was this undertone of activism that we weren't even really aware of at the time that has now very much been labeled onto Best Summer Ever. The activism is really important, but it wasn't the primary focus. I think that we found ourselves as thought leaders and activists over time. And so I had just been involved as I was 19 years old, went out to LA, visit some friends and aligned with these group of people who are doing what my parents were doing in a, a bit more of a creative arts way, just created lifelong friendships with them. So being around that subconsciously, I started to get more into production. I was in college at the time and was focusing on editing. I knew that I liked music videos, but I didn't know if that was a viable thing to go out and do. And I think being around that camp for years and being around these short little short films that we would make, I started to hone my voice aligned with that, but with my own work. And then I hadn't been around camp for probably five years. And then one of the producers had called me and was like, hey, we're going to do a musical, a, a feature length musical. And I was like, yeah, let me know when you're shooting. I would love to come out and see. And they were like, given that it's these kind of music videos, we're thinking that you would be great to direct those. And then we'd have this other director, Lawrence Vitelli, who had a bit more narrative knowledge and it was like, all right, you guys can sort it out how you want to do it and do it together. We had never met before. And it turned into a very challenging endeavor because you've got two completely different directors from opposite sides of the country who have never met before being asked to collaborate and make a movie that's cohesive together. And it's no wonder that most directing duos are siblings. You look at the Coen brothers, <laughs> brother. you have to share a DNA, like, birds in flight, your brains are intertwined in a way. And that's a really challenging ask for two people who, well-meaning people who just don't know one another. And we hit snags throughout the process, but in the end, we're able to get it together and certainly had quarrels together. If there was anything that made it the most challenging for the crew is that Lauren and I were almost like too respectful of one another's opinions on stuff. So 
sometimes we just fall to a standstill where she sees something blue. I see something red. And we're just like, how do we create those primary colors to meet in the middle? And Was rock, scissors, paper, or coin tosses involved? It, honestly, it, in certain ways, yes. I think that we did at times have to really fight for certain things based on our experience. Lauren, of course, had an equal right to the music video elements as I did, but I really would say I knew how to properly script out and account for the edits as an editor of music videos of like, no, we can't, we can't cut this shot. That is going to be integral to a transition in this musical moment. And I think I also would be guilty of being like, we don't need this scene. Like, it's just not that important. You'd be like, no, this is crucial character development for the mom and Sage, the two of them having the scene together. So in the end, I definitely, through that, realized that co-directing is not necessarily something I would want to do again, but I value what I learned from it. I think she would say the same. It was really challenging for both of us, and we, we didn't have another choice. We both were part of the community, but had never met before, just like ships passing in the night at Zeno, and suddenly we're directing a feature film together. Pretty wild. Yeah, that's a lot. And I think you don't always know what you know and don't know too. being able to have that ability to hash it out. There's a there's a DNA aspect to it, too. The double helix of pulling it together. Totally true. So now you're with a group called Doomsday. Could you talk a little bit about what that is and and how you're affiliated with them? Yeah, so. Doomsday is a commercial production company in Los Angeles, and they are my like production company that produces my commercial and music video work, but they also rep me as a director. So if another production company out of Boston wanted to hire me to, to direct something, they would basically be my agent. I just directed a couple commercials for Pokemon that were through Doomsday, so they produced that for me. It's this really wonderful director's roster of incredible talent. Hiro Mirai, who directs Atlanta and has directed some of the you know best music videos of the past 10 years. He directed Childish Gambino's This Is America. So Doomsday produced that. James Lee's from England, Charlie Bueller from South Dakota. Just some directors who I've really idolized for quite a while. So to be part of that group and kind of feel part of that family as someone who's been independent for the vast majority of my career, having to piece things together, Doomsday is just a wonderful support system that brings in the commercial work from the agencies. So we bid out like any other production company would for a commercial job. When I first signed with them, they're like, send us your Christmas list. What are the artists you want to work with? And that was like a dream (laughs) just to write this list out of all my favorite bands and all my favorite artists. And they really go out and try to get me in front of the labels. Doomsday is one of the industry leaders in music videos. And so they're always getting in briefs for really exciting tracks from some of the top artists. Um, And I get to at least pitch on it. It doesn't necessarily mean, oh, you're 100% getting this music video. Whereas Hiro Mirai, who's done, you know, for Kendrick Lamar, Childish Gambino, or Earl Sweatshirt, like he's like a go-to. Any artist would be counter lucky stars to work with him. But he was really created by Doomsday. They really put a lot of effort into him and building him up. And now he directs Barry. He directs, you know, every episode of Atlanta, which is probably my favorite show. So it's an exciting place to be. And it definitely feels like I'm taking strides in the direction 
as far as commercial and music video that I've always wanted to. And then the feature stuff is its own game. That's great. So we've talked a lot about different parts of your career and a film that's been in the can for a while. What are you working on these days? Yeah. So the next film that I'm in the midst of writing is actually about my dad. It's based in Boston in 1999. My dad, Louis Randa, talk about wearing lots of hats. He's been running this day program for people with disabilities for nearly 50 years conscientious objector from Vietnam War. He designed a stone with the engravings, unknown civilians killed in war and created this journey of pushing the stone all the way from Sherburn, Massachusetts to Arlington National Cemetery to give it to Arlington. He, he has had an unbelievable life. And as his son, who's a storyteller and director, that's been really daunting. He's so deserving of the story and he's such an under the radar guy. I always knew that I wanted to tell some segment of his life, but there's so much to choose from. And after making Best Summer Ever, there was a lot of internal pressure like, what's next? Do I continue to ride this? I should really ride this wave of inclusion, but I just did that. I have lots of aspirations as far as different types of films that I want to make. And then one day it just clicked. It was like, split the difference there. Like, my dad. Back in 1999, the state of Massachusetts had owed my parents' school around $300,000, and a lot of budget cuts had happened because of the big dig that was happening. So my dad ended up trying to get the state to pay the money. They wouldn't do it. And then he ended up breaking into the big dig and climbing up a 50-foot crane, handcuffing himself to the crane and lowering down this flag that said, stop digging up human service funding. My dad was arrested. One of many times he's been arrested for his civil disobedience and then the state ended up paying the school back. That's just like the beginning of the film. The meat of it is that back historically, the school was funded by state funding through the Department of Mental Retardation. That was the name of the state agency, which is you'd think is like, oh, that must have been in like the 40s, 50s. No, that was up until 2007. And so my dad and a group of students at the school had really advocated for that name to change. And one of the students from the school who's been there forever, his name is Cordy Woods. He's an individual with cerebral palsy and is an activist in his own right. And my dad and him and a group of individuals with disabilities and their families ended up after failed attempt after failed attempt, ended up staging a demonstration in front of the state house in Boston handcuffing themselves together and to the gates of the state house and several people got arrested with and without disabilities. And it was this like under the radar news clipping in Boston. It was in the Boston Globe, but it's this amazing civil rights story that's really never been told around people with disabilities and their freedom of privacy. They're getting a letter in the mail that says the Department of Mental Retardation in the mail. And it's just totally archaic and so it's really this kind of buddy film between my father and Cordy, who have known each other for 40 years together through this school and their activism together that ended up initiating this change. And so they all got arrested in 2000. And then Cordy and several of the people from that demonstration were at a changing of the name ceremony in Boston where they were arrested and they changed the name from DMR to the Department of Developmental Services. And so it's this buddy film meets a trial of Chicago 7 type of, and the aesthetic of a place beyond the pines in Boston right after Y2K. It's such an interesting time and it's such an important story to be told. 
And it's been right under my nose my my whole life. But it took until I made Best Summer Ever that was like, okay, I can continue to tell inclusive stories and bring it even further into the type of films that I want to make, which are dramas and more of underdog storytelling and to be able to have it also check the box on this is my family. This is my legacy. I kind of was thinking about the documentary Crip Camp. Yeah. And it's sort of a bookend. Best Summer Ever in Crip Camp is covering a lot of different ground with the same kind of spirit, probably propelling a lot of it forward. Totally. Um, and is that how Crip Camp, those guys are Jim Lebrex, a good friend and Lawrence Carter Long, who is one of the executive producers on Crip Camp also plays the cop in Best Summer Ever. And he's just a legendary disability rights guy. And I think the ethos of our films, while they're completely different, you can't really compare a high school musical to this like absolutely engrossing Oscar nominated documentary, but it definitely has brought a lot of visibility in ways that the reach of Best Summer Ever may not. And we're so proud of that film and Lawrence is actually the one who helped get Jim Lebrecht and Crip Camp in front of the Obamas who ended up getting it to Netflix. And so he was actually the one when I told him about the story of my dad, that he was like, that is exactly what needs to be told next. And so he and I have sort of been scheming together of when is the right time to bring this either, either we, you know, find the funding through like CAA or bring it to a studio, make it an A24 film would be like my dream. And yeah, I hope everybody sees that film. I think it's one of the most important documentaries ever made. Agreed. So I, I want to leave you on this question. You talked about the different music video possibilities that you're just trying to focus on, on writing the film. But aside from, from Jay-Z, what's the artist that you would just drop everything for to make sure you were doing that video? God, that's a good question. Arctic Monkeys, for sure. Um, Rage Against the Machine. They're actually getting back together. They were supposed to do a huge tour last year, which got postponed because of COVID, but Actor Roach is like my favorite. I absolutely idolize him. Rage would be huge. God, it's one of those things I think about all the time. And then when the question's asked, the list is too long. But I've been lucky. I've worked with a lot of bands that I really do love. But Arctic Monkeys is like my favorite band probably right now. So I would probably drop everything to do that music video. And also would love to just go back in time and like direct for the band. Even Bob Dylan still, even though I don't really love his music as much anymore. I'd love to work with Dylan. Um, what about you? If you were a music media director, Chad, who would you? R.E.M. gets back together and I'm, yeah. I'm putting that together. I actually did a paper on the song, Talk About the Passion, the video for that. Right. It was a homeless guy camped out and then they zoom wide and it's a warship. And I just thought it was one of the best metaphors I've ever seen um, within a music video. Is Michael Stipe still making music? Yeah, he's got yeah. some singles here and there. But yeah, them and Public Enemy probably shaped my worldview more than anything. I really thank you for your time. This has been fantastic. Um, wish you Absolutely. success on the promotion of this and, and all the other endeavors. And, and good luck trying to get a recreation of The Big Dig. Um, it's going to be expensive. Uh, it was a billion dollar road project, yeah, but I'm sure you can pull it off. Just build it again for us and just start over, just destroy the city. Put a nice train tracks above ground and have it separate part of Boston from yes, the rest of it. I, I think that'll go over fine. No, totally. It doesn't seem like much to ask. Yeah, man, this has been great. I really uh, appreciate you having me on. This is a wonderful conversation and good to reconnect. Next time in, I'm in DC, I'll have to hit you up. Absolutely. Thanks, sir. You got it. Thank you to our guests and sponsors. Without them, there would be no Sport Lifestyle Network. 
If you're listening via Apple Podcast or Spotify, be sure to rate us and subscribe. For more podcasts and to sign up for the newsletter, go to sportlifestylenetwork.com. Again, sportlifestylenetwork.com. Until next time, play hard or at least look good doing it. <laughs>